Five minutes left. I didn't even see that. How long ago was that? Okay, sorry. Yeah. Uh, before uh, introducing Sheikh, uh, or for the introduction, uh, I wrote, read off of paper, and I'm sure many of us feel that this introduction didn't do justice. And Sheikh has so much to offer to us. So, inshallah, uh, after the Asr Salah, uh, Sheikh Hashem will be speaking another session. Uh, this session will be in the multi-purpose hall downstairs. Again, this is after the Asr Salah. And more about uh, his life and the uh, topic of the talk, Hollywood to Mecca and beyond. A little bit, bit about uh, Sheikh's biography and just some pieces of advice that he can give to us, inshallah. Moving on, inshallah, the next few uh, items on the agenda, uh, like previously, we will have parallel sessions going on uh, alongside our main session here, which will be a roundtable discussion with Sheikh Hashim, Sheikh Tamim Ahmadi, Sheikh Hamza Maqbool, uh, moderated by Mufti Minhajuddin. We will have parallel sessions for children ages 6 to 10 in room 11 in the seminary, and for brothers ages 11 to 15, uh, a session by Dr. Rafia how to enjoy and excel in school. This will be in the multi-purpose hall uh, beginning now, inshallah. So again, for brothers ages 11 and above, uh, Dr. Rafi'a will be talking about how to enjoy and excel in school in the multi-purpose hall. And for ages 6 to 10, uh, there will be a session in the seminary, room 111. Our session here, and like many of us uh, may have experienced, not only the advice of our scholars, but their mere presence is a means for us to recharge our Iman. The people of the past, they would simply visit Shuyukh just to see them, and they would say, this was enough to recharge our dead battery. Specifically, a saying that I came across regarding Muhammad bin Wasi' al-Azadi, rahimahullah. One of his contemporaries said, Whenever I would feel lazy in my ibadah, whenever I would start to feel tired and have a lazy attitude in my ibadah, he said, I would go to Muhammad bin Wasi'. He said, I would go to him and just the mere looking at his face, it was enough to spiritually recharge me for weeks upon end. So Alhamdulillah, we are in the gathering of many mashayikh and the gathering of scholars. We are blessed enough, Alhamdulillah, to hear their pieces of advice, uh, stories, and experiences, a means for us to recharge our spiritual batteries. Before moving on with the intros to our guest speakers for the roundtable discussion, I would like to uh, just encourage everyone to move closer together, to leave room in the back for those that are coming in. Also, a quick reminder uh, for brothers to try and maintain uh, wearing the mask. Jazakumullah khairan. Our roundtable, inshallah, like I mentioned, will have Sheikh Hashim Ahmad, who just spoke to us. And then we will also be joined by Mawlana Hamza Maqbool, who is 
who was born in Whittier, California and lived in Southern California until the age of 10 when he moved to Blaine, Washington. After graduating from Blaine High School, he went on to attend the University of, of Washington and in 2004 completed a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry and a Bachelor of Arts in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. After graduation, Sheikh Hamza went on to pursue traditional studies in many different countries around the world, including Syria, Egypt, Morocco, Mauritania, the UAE, and finally Pakistan, where Sheikh studied the different sciences and it culminated in him receiving an ijazat al-tadris, literally meaning a license to teach. After his return to the United States, into the United States, Sheikh Hamza spent five years as the resident scholar of Thor Institute, which is a nonprofit religious and or educational organization based in Seattle, Washington, teaching and giving khutbahs in local masajid. Okay, 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 I'll, I'll move on to that. Um, also, we'll be joined by Sheikh Tamim as well as uh, Sheikh uh, Hashim Ahmed. I uh, request our uh, esteemed scholars to please join us here at the front. The, this session will be moderated by our director, uh, Mufti Azimuddin. Jazakumullah <clears throat> khairan. Please come closer, inshallah. This is one of the most engaging sessions that we have in the whole retreat. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wal-aqibatul muttaqeen, wa la'adwana illa ala zalimeen, wa ashadu wa la ilaha illallah wa ahdahu la sharika la rabbil alameen, wa ashadu anna sayyidana wa nabiyana muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluh, al-mabi'uthu rahmatan lil'alameen, sallallahu ta'ala alihi wa ala alihi wa ashabihi al-tayyibin, al-tahirin, wa man tabi'ahum bi ihsanin ila yawmiddin, amma ba'd. So my dear respected brothers, elders, sisters in Islam, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Indeed is my distinct honor to be hosting this panel of illustrious scholars and mashayikh who are with us from various different backgrounds and to have this interactive session where we'll be inshallah learning from their experiences and their stories in their lives. Stories and anecdotes, experiences that they have had with their mashayikh in their journeys in seeking knowledge Insha'Allah, these will be inspiring for us, Insha'Allah. And this is a distinct genre in the Quran, in the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shares with us qasas. لَقَدْ كَانَ فِي قَصَصِهِمْ عِبْرَةٌ لِأُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ In the stories Allah ta'ala mentions in the Quran, Allah ta'ala says there's a lesson for those who have intelligence. مَا كَانَ حَدِيثًا يُفْتَرَى They're not fabricated stories. They're not false stories, they're not fiction. They testify to the truth of the previous scriptures. They give the details of all that is required for our guidance. It is a source of guidance and mercy for the believers. And one is if you just hear a lecture on taqwa, it has its due effect insha'Allah. But one is much more effective if you hear a story of a person who embodies taqwa. One is to hear about courage, determination, ishtihad, efforts in seeking knowledge, in practicing, in propagation, in da'wah. 
And one is when you hear the stories of those who have traversed this path and have left us a shining example to follow. It has its own effect. And this is a means of bringing barakah in our gathering. As Abdullah ibn Barak rahimahullah mentioned about his teacher, Imam Nu'man, otherwise known as Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah that the more you mention about him, the more it is like the musk, the more you rub it, the more fragrance emanates. So inshallah, I'm just the host and we will hear from our uh, panel. This is just to introduce the, the discussion. So alhamdulillah, uh, we have been hearing from them Malana Tamim from California is visiting us. Uh, we had him last night. Many have joined us afterwards today. You may have missed yesterday. Please join, uh, listen to it online. So he has his journey that he will share with us. And then we have Sheikh Hamza, who is, mashallah, a great giant. Basatan fil ilmi wal jismi. Right? So he is, mashallah, uh, very um, near to us. Qalban and Qalaban, you know, physically near to us and in our heart, he's very near to us. And Sheikh Hashim, mashallah, we just heard from him and his uh, amazing story. The only challenge I have is that each one could take the whole day or multiple days giving their respective stories. But uh, just to keep the tanawwar and to have multiple different uh, stories intersecting with one another and to keep our interest, we have all three of them. It'll be just... Uh, you know, scratching the surface in reality. But inshallah, we hope Allah Ta'ala puts barakah in the time. So, I'll start with the one who is Adna Fal Adna, right? The nearest to me is Mawlana Tamim. Inshallah, and I would like to ask him that um, one specific request I had was as we heard about Hakim Akhtar Sab, Nawarullah Marqadahu last night. And you mentioned in your talk as well, uh, I felt sorry when you said you have put me in a haraj, <laughs> uh, that you wanted to stick to your topic, but your heart was uh, inclined towards Hakim Saab after hearing his nasheed, his, his beautiful ash'ar of ma'rifah that were recited before your talk. So can you tell us something about Hakim Akhtar Saab, rahmatullahi and your experiences with him and what you benefited from him? Some inspiring stories of Hazrat. Take your time, inshallah. This is the longest session in the whole retreat, this, this panel, inshallah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salamu ala ashraf al anbiya'i wal mursaleen, Sayyidina wa Nabiyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, wa man tabi'ahum bi ihsan illa yawmiddin. Amma ba'd. You know, as I... Many times I am, I'm asked about um, the company and the time that we spent with our beloved Sheikh, Hazrat Manana Shah, Hakim Muhammad Akhtar Saab, Rahmatullahi Alayhi. You know, it, it's, it's like a, a waterfall of just uh, all these incidents and stories and different experiences that I had and I don't know where to start. But one thing that I did want to say is an interesting thing that Maulana Abdul Hamid uh, who's the uh, principal of Azadville Madrasa, he said about our Shaykh Rahmatullah who passed away. He said that Maulana Hakim Akhtar Saab in this day and age, he said the way that I see him is like 
somebody who should have like lived in Khairul Qurun in the third century, you know, with Imam Bukhari and you know all these you know great illustrious people, and they were going on a caravan. So while they're going on a caravan, they left one person behind, and he ended up in like the 14th century. And when you would go to see him, like our brother who was mentioning that Muhammad ibn Wasi'ah, that when you would feel down and you wouldn't feel like worshipping and you would get lazy and you would get lethargic, you would just go and take one look at his face and for weeks on end, you would get this, you know, you know it, this, this courage and this himma and this, you know, uh, uh, this, this zeal to worship Allah Azza wa Jal. And the reality of, you know, these people is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an, كُونُوا مَعَ الصَّادِقِينَ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَكُونُوا مَعَ الصَّادِقِينَ Oh, you who believe, you know, have consciousness and taqwa of Allah azza wa jal and be with the righteous people, be with the truthful ones. And I think this is a very important thing to understand because what we are saying here and what we are talking here, this is not shakhsiyat parasti. Some people say this is personality worship. We didn't worship these personalities. We took from them and we benefited from them. And if we don't understand the reality of having these individuals that in Islam we believe karamatul awliya'i haqqun. This is part of aqidah tahawiyah. It's a necessary text for you to be part of ahl sunnah wal jama'ah. Karamatul awliya'i haqq. The miracles of the saints is true. This is just one aspect of the faith, you know, this, uh, what do you call it? One tenet of faith from aqidah tahawiyah. Okay. If karamatul awliya'i haqq, first you have to establish awliya. Then you can establish their karamat. You don't want to believe in awliya, how are you going to establish their karamat? People don't want to believe in awliya today. Right? People don't want to believe that there are such people that when you look at them, their hal, just their, their, their condition will guide you and make you change your life. These are actual people who lived that we saw. And wallahi, you know, I was one of those people that before I was connected to our beloved Sheikh, the people who I heard talking about him, I said, what is all this stuff, man? This is all, what is this? You know, I was like somebody who didn't believe in any of this, like all this mumbo jumbo. Piri Muridi Sheikh, you know, Murid, disciple, this type of stuff. What is this, the Pope you guys are like worshipping or something? What is this? And, you know, the, the, when, when, when I actually, you know, when, when I came to Karachi, you know, the story is long. I don't know where to begin. But, you know, my father passed away when I was six months old. And, you know, as we were, you know, going through life, the, you know, beginning stages of my life, when I think about it, it was very dark. We didn't have salah in our home, you know. I was born in Afghanistan, 1979. And that was exactly at the time that the coup d'etat took place, where the communists, they overthrew the government. My father was one of those people who, you know, not uh, one of those hardcore religious people. He was just a, you know, regular person who was against the communist government. He was put on, you know, the hit list and he was taken when I was six months old. And my mother uh, says that the, when we came, the door was left open and you were still in your crib and they had taken your father. And like this, you know, we, we came to America in 1980. And we first we were staying in New York and those initial stages in the 80s from age like, you know, one, I remember to age 11, 12. I don't remember, 
you know, masjid. I don't remember Quran. I don't remember deen. Nothing of that. We didn't have any of that in, in our life. So just like a regular American kid, you know, going to public school, Christmas, Halloween, uh, you know, the, the whole nine yards. We, that's, what, that's how I remember growing up. And the first connection to when my life actually changed was a very, very good friend of mine in, uh, you know, all the way in junior high. I, you know, this young man, mashallah, he used to wear shawar kameez at school, different than everybody else. And I asked him, I said that, uh, you know, uh, why do you dress like this? He said, I'm a Muslim. I said, well, I I'm Muslim too. I just knew that much that I'm Muslim. And what is Muslim like culturally Muslim? Like Muslim is like a check, something that you check off in a, you know, on a list of things. Okay, uh, are you Christian? No. Are you, oh, Muslim. Yeah, that's what we are. That's, who I, that's what I considered being Muslim men. So I said, but I'm Muslim too. I said, but why do you dress like this? He said, well, I'm Hafiz of the Quran. I said, Hafiz of the Quran? What is, what is Hafiz of the Quran? This is how, like, how lost I was. I said, what is Hafiz of the Quran? He said, well, I've memorized the whole Quran. Oh, come on, man. You can't memorize a whole book. I said, okay, okay, just start reading from anywhere. And he's like, how would you know if I even... <laughs> so... That was the moment that I came home and I told my mom. I said, Mother John, you know, like, I want to tell you something. I met a Hafiz of the Quran today. She said, oh, really? In your school? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, you know, Qari da Afghanistan, Qari kura You know, in Afghanistan back home, you know, Qari, Hafiz, the blind people would become Qari and Hafiz. So if they were blind and if they were somebody that wasn't, so this is kind of like the background I was coming from. Like, they had a very, like, negative sentiment towards people of religion, negative sentiment towards, uh, you know, ilm and ulama and, 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 and hufad. So, you know, very, like, modern type, uh, you know, uh, you know non-dini, but whatever, they, they still said we're culturally Muslim. So that's the household that I was raised in. I said, at that moment when I met this person who was a hafiz of Qur'an, and I'm going to get to the main point, how it's what's so amazing about this hafiz of Qur'an. You know, my mom said, oh, yeah, oh, that's, that's really nice. You found a good friend and, you know, it was ended. But, but that night I was thinking to myself, how come I don't know anything about my deen? I don't even know how to recite the Quran. Look at this person. He's same age as me. You know, we're 13 years old and he's completely memorized the entire Quran and he's in algebra. That was like, you know, he's algebra, you know. And he's good in his school and he gets straight A's. And he's a hafiz of Quran and look at how beautifully he dressed. I mean, it had a great impact upon me. And this is another thing, brother, brothers and sisters. You don't know how many people you will impact by your sacrifices and you practicing your deen. I, I was, this, is, this is who I was. I was a kid, literally, you know, immigrant, you know, not even first generation. Immigrant kid coming from Afghanistan, living the, you know, American dream, which is the Islamic nightmare, right? <laughs> So I'm, I'm there and I'm like lost my everything. I've lost everything. And this young man who's holding on to his deen, Hafiz of Quran, you know, straight A's at school and, you know, re representing Islam in the most beautiful way, you know, Sunnah Libas and just beautiful. And just his demeanor and the way he carried himself changed my entire life. He changed my life. And he got me to think that look at what he's achieved. How come I don't know the Qur'an? How come I don't know how to read the Qur'an? How come I don't know about prayer? And 
it was that moment that I said, I have to change my life because this is embarrassing. This is a Muslim. I'm not a proper Muslim. And the interesting thing was, as I started learning about the deen from him, he would bring the Nurani Qaeda every, I said, I want to start learning. I said, Hafiz, I want to start learning. He said, okay, but you want to start learning. You're going to have to listen to everything that I say. You're not going to be, you know, ifs, ands, and buts. I said, whatever you say, I just want to learn how to read the Quran. I want to learn how to pray. Lesson from Surah yeah, exactly, yeah. Right? You're not going to have patience. No, I said, I'll, I'll do whatever you tell me. So then, every day, he brought the Nurani Khaida. He would bring the alphabet book. And not in lunch break, not Al-Qaeda, al Nurani Qaeda. So this was before all of that. This was in the, it was like in 91, 92. So he, he would bring, the, he would bring the, the, the alphabet book and every day at lunch, he would teach me how to recite. And, you know, in those lunch breaks, I learned how to read the Quran. In those lunch breaks. And the interesting thing was, is that this Hafiz al-Quran, he had studied at Ashraf al-Madaris, the madrasa of my beloved Sheikh, Shah Hakim Akhtar Saab, who later on, I didn't know. That explains he's not a typical graduate from here. No, he wasn't. He was a very, very special person. So, the point being is, you know, when people talk about, you know, shakhsiyat parasti, or people talk about, you know, this is the reality of kunuma sadiqeen. This, that young man, in that time, he was a, to me, he was a saint. He's there. He's in, he's in California. And he, he to me, in, in that situation that he was in, Allama Shaarani Rahmatullahi mentions that that person who implements the sunnah and establishes the deen in a place where nobody is implementing the sunnah and establishing the deen, he is the qutub of that place. Allama Shaarani Rahmatullahi said that. That person who is implementing the sunnah and establishing the deen in a place where nobody is establishing the deen. And everybody is ghafil. He is the qutub of that place. And that young man, maybe 14 years old, 13 years old, you know, he was, and, and, and like I said, we think about saints to be, you know, a 90-year-old buzurg sheikh that, you know, he just looks at you and then, you know, you faint or something like that. <laughs> that is not what we talk about a saint. A saint, somebody who lives his life according to the, the, the pleasure of Allah Azza wa Jalla and the sunnah of Rasulullah How much sacrifice he must have made. How much hardships he must have went through. That at that, in that time, you know, and you know, nobody, uh, uh, you know, wearing shalwar kameez or having the sunnah beard or whatever, nobody would do that. And on, I would remember specifically, one day out of the week, he would wear a turban. And I would ask him, why you, you know, one day of the, he said, today, this is Friday. It was like, oh, okay. And he's like, you know what we need to do? We need to establish Jummah. And the point being is, all of this, what we speak about, this young man who became such an influence in my life, all of this was because at such a young age, he had the suhbah of the ulama. He had the suhbah and the company of the righteous people. He had the company of that pious person that now wherever he went, وَجَعَلْنَا لَهُ نُورًا يَمْشِي بِهِ فِي النَّاسِ Allah Ta'ala had given him a nur, and with that nur, he walked amongst the people. That now whoever came his way, who, you know, would, uh, you know, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala had willed the hidayah of the person like a, you know, uh, a wretched and lost person like me, I was completely lost, you know, that person became, 
a source of, of, of guidance and, and hidayah for me. And, you know, more than my beloved Shaykh, uh, you know, Hazrat Ma Hakim Akhtar Sahib, Rahmatullah Alayhi, that I think, Ijma'an, everybody, you know, nobody doubts that he was a wali and a saint. But I want to make mention of the person who became the sabab of that. That that young man, nobody would consider him. I consider him a saint. Nobody would, would, would say that he is a, a, a very special person. Nobody would consider that he is a wali of Allah Azza wa Jal or somebody who is, you know, a, a, a source of hidayat or guidance. But for me, he was my hazrat at that time. He was my shaykh. He was my guy. And I'm saying every single one of us who practiced the deen, every single one of us who, you know, hold on to that burning coal, you're holding on to that burning coal in the time where, you know, the deen is being mocked, in the time where people are embarrassed to even wear the hijab or to, you know, uh, look like a Muslim or to be called a Muslim. They're holding that burning ember. That is a person who is a friend of Allah. That is a person who is a saint and a wali of Allah Azza wa Jal. And you don't know to how many people you have the key to the lock of their heart. Don't underestimate the, the, the influence that you, that you may have in your college, in your school, at your high school, at your junior high, you know, wherever you go, at your work, at your workplace. And like I said, that this person, you know, he was like, uh, you know, a little Khalifa of, of Hazrat Rahmatullah. So I just wanted to mention that in, in you know, the, the stories of my Shaykh uh, Rahmatullah is, is something that, wow, you know, nobody would deny that. Yeah, that, I mean, nobody would deny that. But this, this is something I think more prominent because I think every single one of us who's here for is more relevant for us. May Allah subhanahu wa You know, what you mentioned in the beginning that seeing Shaykh Hakim Akhtar Sahib would give you that himmah. Uh, and you said that sometimes people, people think these are fantasies. Well, just to remind myself and everyone else, this actually is Mansur. So Rasulullah specifically already mentioned this where he said that uh, the best friend who is the best friend? Man billahi So this is something textually proven from a marfu'a hadith of Rasulullah is that man billahi The best friend is the one that when you see him, you remember Allah. And if this wasn't even possible, why the Prophet mentioned that? Right? Uh, and when he speaks, it increases your knowledge of the deen. And number three is man When you see his actions, it reminds you of the hereafter. Subhanallah. So this young boy is very inspiring for me. Of course, I know Malatami all these years, but first time I'm also hearing this story. These are the, uh, uh, mashallah, the pearls and the benefits of such gatherings. And as a young boy, he learned so much. It reminds me of Rabi'atul Rai, rahimahullah, from the Tabi'een, that someone objected about to his mother that he's only four or five years old and he can barely wear his, his shalwar, his lower garment. His mother used to tie it for him, otherwise it would fall down. And she would send him into Masjid the Nabwi. And there were high-level discussions taking place, academic discourses. And someone said that this young boy, he can't understand anything. All right. What's the, what's the point? We have all the parallel children's programs for the same reason. <laughs> right. So what is he going, how is he going to benefit? So she said that, He will never be able to acquire knowledge until he learns adab of ilm and etiquettes. And he will never learn the etiquettes of how to acquire knowledge until he sits in the company of the ulama. So right now, 
He doesn't have to understand what's going on. He has to learn the etiquettes, the adab of the masjid. After he learns the adab, inshallah, he can learn the ilm. Moving forward, inshallah, we have uh, Shaykh Hamza Maghul. Uh, what I wanted to hear from him. Uh, in the, Okay, uh, if you can keep, okay. Yeah, so he, mashallah, if he can, he has a very unique experience in many aspects of his life that we could learn from, but uh, I, I personally have not visited Mauritania in West Africa, Northwest Africa. I, I, I can pretty confident majority of us have not traveled to that region. So if he can tell us something about Africa, of course he studied in Lahore and Pakistan as well, but if he can give us some of the stories of Africa, uh, I've heard about the whole system of the Hidhul Matun. You, you've the never, you've never been to Africa before? No, Africa I've been. Not North Mauritania I have not been. Uh, so, yeah, South Africa, of course. So, we can hear about the Hidhul Matun and the Shanaqita and the Ulum and the Tazkiyah and the Mujahadat in the desert and how's the life there, inshallah. How you ended up there and how was your experience there? Bismillah. I, uh, um, I don't know, I, I feel bad sometimes talking about these things because it's kind of like a freak show, like, oh, look, it's something different, this entertaining. And uh, to be honest with you, I didn't really, I didn't really uh, follow the examples of the mashaykh over there. I just went and saw them. Uh, but uh, I guess uh, that's going to have to suffice for now. Um, but the system of study in the entire Muslim world at one time was somewhat similar, it was unified, it's a really good system, which is that the instruction of a student starts when they're a kid, and it's kind of like a funnel, you know, the ones who have aptitude and want to continue, keep continuing, and uh, uh, the ones who have to go do other stuff as long as they learn some basic uh, amount that they have to learn, or whatever they're able to, for the, you know, if they can't even do that, um, they just kind of go by the wayside. And so the system in, in Mauritania, one of the nice things is it's kind of still in that, in that mode. Both in the beginning of your study and uh, uh, the fact that there is no end, right? We're having, who, who here, mashallah, who are our uh, young graduates, mashallah, raise your hands, who are going to graduate this weekend? Go ahead, raise your hands. Go ahead, where are you? And who are other people graduated from Madrasa? Go ahead, raise your hands, mashallah. We have some mashayikh and ulama and muftis and everything. Mashallah. If you suspect it's a trap, then always know it's a trap. If I ever tell you to raise your hand in a bayan, it's a trap. Be smart. <laughs> Save your alayhi. It's a trap. There is no graduation. You're never finished. You're never done. People say, how many years is the course in Mauritania? I go, well, you know, there's no years and course. This is all just bakwas that we make up in order to get people to listen to us. Otherwise, who's going to say, oh, look, I finished learning knowledge. Mauritania is still like that. Who becomes a sheikh over there? You just everyone keeps studying. People who love knowledge study, and people who want—I don't know—like hunt wild animals in the in the in the jungle. Go do that. You know, like whoever does what what they want to do does what they want to do. One day, what happens? So everybody with more ilm than you might die, might die. And then you become sheikh out of like adverse propriety, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, like you're in Boston in the 1700s and, you know, one neighbor wants to stay part of Britain and the other neighbor wants to be part of America and you're just doing your thing and then one day you're like, I guess we're American now. Like, you know, it's, it, it just kind of happens. It's not really something you choose. And so uh, that's still there, mashallah. There's, we, there's still people, people like in their 70s who are just still going to dars 
uh, and things like that. And that used to also be there in the Indian subcontinent as well. Um, and uh, it never was here in America, but inshallah one day. You know, you're not on social media as much as I can tell as other people. So, alhamdulillah, mashallah. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the issue is this is that that's what I saw. And the traditional system is that you memorize, you memorize your, your, your lessons because you take it with you everywhere. It's, Islam is, first it's an oral tradition. It's definitely a written tradition as well. Uh, but first, primarily, it's, uh, you know, ayatun bayinatun fi suduri ladina utul ilm. The manifest signs carried in the chests of the people who are given knowledge. And the idea is this, is that like, okay, if you, you know, if you are able to talk a lot or whatever, that's great. But until it actually practically manifests itself in somebody walking down the street and then people remembering Allah and all the other good stuff that Sheikh Tamim was talking about, it's questionable how much benefit there is in it. I'm not going to say it's without benefit because one day some things, they sit for a while and for the, the time, time for them to click hasn't come yet. So go ahead and learn still. But uh, uh, that's the goal is that it should kind of sit like that. So we saw, mashallah, our mashaykh, Murabit al-Hajj, rahimahullah, tabarakwa ta'ala. Uh, he trained so many generations of ulama. The first generations of his students, most of them passed away during his lifetime because he had an abnormally long life. And, uh, you know, if you want to talk about a wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I read a lot. I read a lot of stories about different things. When I saw him, I thought, okay, maybe the stories are not all made up because um, he more or less sits here and he uh, uh, eats like twice a week. And he, uh, you Can know. he give us like a daily schedule, Sheikh Murabit? I mean, what are you going to schedule? I mean, he literally, he would, pray, he would schedule salat and he would just recite Quran constantly. This is one thing that I want yeah. to chime in with. What Mawlana Hamza is saying is when I saw... And that, uh, this is the same exact thing that I felt. When I saw Murabit al-Hajj, what did he say? He said, I, I, I felt that maybe all the stories that they have in the books are not lies. It's true. You know, many people hear about the name of Imam al-Ghazali. They call him Hujjatul Islam. Mawlana Qasim Nanoti, Hujjatul Islam. That you see this individual, he's the proof of Islam. I mean, these, when you see them, you're like, wait a minute. You know, wait a minute, these stories, are, it's not, it's not, these aren't lies. This is for real. These people are for real. And that's why when you come from, you know, a culture like, you know, ah, this stuff is all like fake stuff, you know, what are these people like, you know, uh, the Pope and like, what, you know, that's what I was, I used to call like these sheikhs, like, this is, what are these, like popes and priests or something? And then when you actually see the genuine sincerity of these people that they live their life for Allah, literally, he has no privacy. His door is open. Anybody could go from the street and just walk up, sit in front of him and ask for dua and cry in front of him and put his shoe. And these people existed. And you know what Maulana is saying, that's exactly what I felt, you know, when, you know, I saw him as like, wait a minute, you know, this, is, this, is, this could be true. And it was true, you know. Myself and Sheikh Tamim are beta kaluf like that, mashallah, alhamdulillah, mashallah. Um, so anyway, the, the, to make a long story short, you know, the mashaykh that I read from, I read from him, I read from his, you know, he was at the time, I guess, uh, at about 100, he passed away when he was over 110. Um, I read from his baby cousin, who was at that time, I think in his late 70s, uh, 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 Murabit Haddamin, uh, and I read from his son as well. And, uh, you know, there were people... Is like, like, like two lives. I mean, mashallah, there's a lot of... There's a lot of like lack of takalluf, lack of, lack of formality in the sense like Murabit, for example, you know, 
Moana Tamim was saying that, you know, that Mashaykh, they have their doors open. This is actually part of the adab of, it's in, it's in, it's in the books of fiqh, that like the, the qadi and the ulama are an exception. Otherwise, it's haram to go into someone's house without knocking. In the old days, the Mashaykh, I mean, the way the houses Muslims used to have were different, right? People had a life built on, based on Islam, not on imitating, uh, you know, the lemmings of the hellfire. So what happens is, this, is, this is good advice for people. I didn't know until I like went and saw this and I put two and two together. Outside people don't go into your house. Every house has an area that's there for, for uh, receiving guests. No outside man, this is not just deen, this is like common sense of like being a human being actually. No outside man especially should ever lay eyes on the inside of your house, ever. Your father, maybe your cousins if they're not complete lunatics or whatever, right? So what happens in the old days, you used to have houses that they, they have like a front room to receive people. And, uh, and then inside there's a harim that nobody comes into. And so even then you, should, you have to knock. It's haram to walk into somebody's, even the majlis without knocking. Except for the ulama. Because it's understood that they have to, people have to have access to them. So they can come ask their questions. You come sit in the, sit in the, the outer chamber. And, uh, or the judge, for example, if someone has a complaint uh, and needs help. Uh, that you should be able to access them. So that's what Sheikh Tamim was saying, that their door is open. Their door has to be open. It should be open. Um, what do you say about Murabit had no door? <laughs> there's no door. Like literally just sitting in a... It's, it's like a tent in the sense that it's shade from above, but there's no sides to the tent. And so, uh, you know, mashallah with me, you have no idea what I was doing a couple of hours ago. Really, you have no idea what I was doing. A couple of, Allah forgive, Allah Ta'ala protect us all, mashallah, Allah Ta'ala keep the, tent, the tent, tent covers, covering all of us, me and you, all of us, I mean. But the issue is this, is that imagine somebody who literally is there like 24 hours a day and with, without the kalaf, you can hear khatam of Quran every day or every other day just from him sitting there. He'll say, wa alaykum assalam. Other than that, I didn't really see him shoot the breeze with, many, with, with, with anybody. You know, he doesn't talk to people. He just sits, faces the qibla, reads the Quran. Every now and then again, I would hear some abiyat from the qasida burda. And uh, uh, he would hobble over to the masjid with the help supported by his, uh, supported by his like, grandsons and his nephews. And uh, that's it. Uh, he would go and come back, and the same thing, Haddamin, the same thing, all of them, we would see, we would see them just uh, spending the entire day uh, with the students and uh, just repeating their, their lessons. They would read Quran with such speed when they were making dor, right? Because nowadays what happens, we have some HIF students. Uh, the, what we call HIFs over here is kind of conceptually, it's a little bit different that you can like, I guess, shut the mushaf and then re repeat the... The, the dars to your teacher. Um, but the thing they do in Mauritania seems a little bit more reminiscent of what they used to do in the old, day, the old days, which is that you repeat your lesson some high number of times. Like, for example, your lesson would be repeated a thousand times. So put it in perspective. Imagine the mushaf that we, uh, uh, you know, usually carry is somewhere around 600 pages, around 20 pages per sapara, depending on what. You know, I don't know what to... I'm not a hafiz, so the hafiz people are, like, really into this. So, like, forgive me for, like, not being super accurate. So if you repeat one page, your lesson is one page and you repeat it a thousand times, you're getting close to doing two khatams of Quran, but worth reading, but with, with, with that one page. And so that's how they used to memorize. A person who memorizes like that, I never saw any of them get stuck. I never saw any of them like make mistakes. It just, it doesn't, you know, and that, that's the other thing is that you have like a, the, 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 the hafiz would make hifz of the Quran without ever owning a mushaf. So you have a wooden tablet you write today's lesson on it, 
and then, uh, 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 yeah, the loh, right? You write the, today's lesson on it, and then you uh, memorize it, and then you wash it clean, and then you write the next lesson. A couple of benefits. One is that the rest of the Quran is part of the Quran, how it's written, right? Maliki Yomadin is not written with an alif. It's written meme, lam, kaf, with a, you know, there's reasons for all this that you learn later. You memorize the rasam as well, and it's an environmentally friendly solution because you don't waste paper. Uh, although the mushaf is not a waste of paper, but some people, unfortunately, they don't use it like they should. Uh, it's also uh, another beautiful thing about it is what it's a tra tradition of the Anbiya, of Wahi, Sayyidina Musa, walking to Anyone here been in a synagogue before? Yeah, it's not a trap. I'm not going to say like all of you know, yeah, right? So they always have, they have like these kind of like, like stylized uh, 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 tablets, like tablet images on the wall. And sometimes they'll have like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten written on two tablets to symbolize the Ten Commandments. Why? It's a symbol of their, something that they wanted to remember in the prophetic past of their people. It's still alive in the Ummah today that the children learn wahi from what? From the alwah. And what do they do afterward? They, I remember I was sitting in Qatar, there was some random Mauritanian I saw someone, you could kind of tell them amongst other people, because uh, they have the habits of Bedouins, but they're actually like, they know how to read and write, unlike other people, other Bedouins that, you know, oftentimes don't. So, I, I spotted the Mauritanian, and I'm like, hey, and, and the guy's like, oh, and so we started talking, making mudakar about Mauritania, and, uh, 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 and then he mentioned, he, he mentioned, he made a mistake in front of all the Qataris, all, the, all the, you know, like the super hardcore like Wahhabi like guys. He's like, he goes, he goes, yeah, and we would memorize the Quran and then we would wash the loh, the ink from the loh, because the ink is also natural. It's mostly ilk, what they call gum Arabic. It grows wild. They mix it with like a little bit of ash and they, that's what they make the ink out of. So then we would wash the alwah and then the water from the, from the lesson, we would drink it. And then he realized, like all the other guys in the, all the other Bedouins are like, like going to shirk mode. They're like getting jungju. They're about to like, you know, put him down for like bid'ah and shirk and all this other stuff. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how that's shirk. I thought shirk was worshiping idols, but at any rate, uh, he, he, you know, and then they're like, he's like, yeah, yeah, Sufiya shway, yani, like, in, uh, but the Quran is great, you know. And it's like, look, dude, okay, fine, have the, have the discussion. If you want to have the discussion, ask Mufti Saab, is it a bid'ah or not? He'll tell you all about it, mashallah. He'll bring his nusus and you know, all this other stuff, right? I would rather drink the ink from the loh of, this, uh, of, of the lesson of Quran that I learned than, mashallah, uh, uh, the McDonald's that uh, these other people are eating uh, with their, mashallah, fatawi. But the point is, is that that's what, that was their love that they had for, for these things. They're simple things. Children, everybody learned the Quran. Everybody read the Quran. I haven't been to Mauritania for so many years now, so I don't know. The world changes so fast. But what I would see in Mauritania is that, like, for example, two, three people go for a walk. Instead of chit-chatting with one another, they would just being recite, recite Quran out loud. So you would hear in the streets, you'd hear in the pathways, you'd hear between the tents, you would hear even in the cities, you just hear people reading Quran. And, like, for us now, we, like, live under the yoke of oppression from what I like to call the cult of da'wah, which is what? You are personally responsible for whether people like Islam or not. And it goes to weird places like, don't pray in public. People are going to look down on Islam. Don't read Quran. Your relatives are going to look down on Islam. Don't read this. They're going to get upset. And then, Yom Al-Qiyamah, you're going to be responsible for their kufr. No, dude. Like, if you go up to them and say, hey, look, you know, like, 
you came to the masjid, now I'm going to beat you up. Like, okay, yeah, you might be responsible for making people not like Islam there, right? But if you want to make da'wah to people, what's a better way of showing people about what Islam is than by practicing what you supposedly think is good? Like Mu'an Tamim said with, uh, uh, with this brother who is still alive, you know, make du'a for him. People, human beings, they go through ups and downs. Make du'a for We should make du'a for each other, inshallah. Um, the, the idea is what? Is that they would do that, and then I'm like, wow, like I can do that too. And uh, it, it also impacted me as well. So you go through all the lessons, you memorize the lessons, and then it starts to become, uh, it becomes a part of your life. You memorize things, right? So we read the, the, the matan of the, the, sorry, the, the nazam of the adrumiya. Right, so I remember I went with one of my uh, uh, one of my uh, teachers to go and visit one of their relatives. Like tribal people have like really like well connected relative groups, right? Uh, uh, and so kinship groups. And so what happens is he, the sheikh had another student. His name was Adil. So when we went and visited his relative, he go, he says to to his cousin, he goes, "Is this Adil?" He points to me, he goes, "Is this Adil?" And and uh, 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 you know. You know, and they all laughed, right? Uh, why? Because it becomes part of life. It becomes your joking. It becomes your happiness. It becomes your sadness. It becomes the thing that you console people with. It becomes the metaphor that you use in order to describe what you do in life. Otherwise, Mauritania is not like the super Camelot type place people think. If you ever met a Bedouin, anyway, if you've met Bedouins before, you know like they're like very different people. The Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it's, you know, it's a sahih hadith that he basically forbade. If the Bedouins ever come to the city, they're not allowed to lead the Salat. I remember I asked my shaykh, I said, even if Murabit came to the city, he, says, it's, he goes, it just, it's a hikmah of the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it's just not going to work out because they, it's, they, they're very different than people who live in the city. There's like the way you survive in the desert is very different than the way you uh, uh, survive in the city. Uh, if you want an example, like when somebody else's goat comes into your tent and eats your, your food, you know, then see how, what the different perceptions are of that, <laughs> of that event happening. You know, Murabit, you know, Murabit Benavides, you know, I think he married your cousin, right? He's accepted Islam back in the day. I remember that because you're, if you're broke as a student of knowledge in Karachi, imagine how broke you are in the Badia, in the desert, right? So he saved up money and bought a bunch of dates. Someone's donkey got into his tent and slobbered all over his books and he was, it was eating his dates and it slobbered over all of everything. And I just saw the broken look of resignation. And I said, this is mashallah, what the mashayikh say, that somebody whose nafs is completely, <laughs> completely broken, you know. Um, it's different. And you go and ask them, like, what happened. They're like, eh, you know, even the mashayikh are like, you know, it says whatever. It says in such and such book that, like, in the day that the zamanat for it is on the owner, and in the night the zamanat is on the owner of the animal, and the day is the owner of the property. It's just really weird. So if you ever go to Mauritania and you experience that weirdness, be like, but... Hamza said that like they're all great awliya and read Quran day and night. There's other stuff happening. The point of mentioning that is that they're regular people like you and me. A lot of stuff that, they, that we do is weird as well to them. It's weird to them. It's strange. Like people would ask questions about America and the sheikh would be like, Gah, lie, America. And you're like, you're like, yeah, that's what they do. And he's like, ah, kufar, tubihim. And he won't even answer the question. He'd be like, this is just ludicrous. Like, this is just like, I don't even understand. This is a question. This is all dumb. Like, why would you even live there? You know? The, the point is, is what? <laughs> it's a question to ask. For us, we like it. It's our home. For us, we ask, why would you live in the desert? <laughs> They're human beings. 
We're human beings. The point of mentioning it is what? Is that you can still bring the ilm into your life. You can still bring the Quran into your life. You can still bring these practices into your life and make it fit like where, where you are and what you're doing. It's not some sort of Camelot thing. I don't, want to, I don't want to make it seem like these are like some people that are superhuman that are not like you and me. The reason that what they did was superhuman is precisely because they are like you and me. They have to go through difficulties. They have cousins that are annoying. They have like to pay bills. They have to do all these things as well, but they manage to like, you know, fit it all in, uh, in together while reading Quran and while like doing all of this stuff uh, too. So. Jazakumullah khairan, subhanallah. As I mentioned in the beginning that, you know, there's just so much to cover. Uh, our next uh, speaker, subhanallah, contributor and our panel, our, uh, our senior scholar with us, I, just his life, the different phases, I'm not sure if you paid attention to his bio, uh, starting off from how he accepted Islam, how he traveled the world, his effort in da'wah, and then going to uh, Makkah al-Makarramah, studying Jami Umar al-Qura, and how he ended up actually moving to Karachi itself and teaching Jamiatul Ulum al-Islam in Binuri town uh, with so many giants, mashallah, and my respected beloved teacher Mufti Allah al-Haq was there. So he is a teacher to me in the sense he's a, uh, he is a colleague of my teacher. And then uh, after that, Allah Akbar, uh, teaching so many years in Karachi with in Madrasa Ibn Abbas and Madrasa Aisha and Dr. Amjad Chaudhary, Laman Barakatuhum, and, and now he's back. So I, I, I'm so curious and I'm so excited to hear about different parts of his life. Um, but I will leave it up to him to uh, speak about which chapter he feels uh, would be the most inspiring for our attendees. Either the initial part when he accepted Islam or inshallah uh, or his time in Makkah al-Makarama. How was it there back in the 80s versus the vision 2030 that we're heading to? to, to the, and who, who were the mashayikh in Umm al-Qura back then? Uh, and then also of course in Karachi. So, yeah, as I was we were saying earlier, if we would have been briefed, that would have been nice, you know, but perhaps it's better that we weren't. So, what would you like to hear about? Huh? How did I come to the fold of Islam? Well, you know what? There was a there was a there was a Muslim from South Africa. He's a uh, trainer, he's a, uh, amazing person. I asked him that question. I said, "How did you come to Islam?" He said, "I didn't come to Islam. Islam came to me." And that's what I'm saying, you know. Um, so similarly, like 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 Sheikh Tamim, you know, Umar radhiyallahu he says, "Men lam yarif al-jahiliya lam yarif al-Islam." Who doesn't know jahiliya, he won't know Islam. So do you have a course of jahiliya here at the... Because <laughs> if you don't know that, they're not going <laughs> to... You know, unfortunately, we all immersed in jahiliya. Or do they get that before they come? Yeah, they get that enough of those of them. We all immersed in jahiliya. So, you know, that's the thing, you know, that... Uh, so you don't, you don't have to go out and learn jahiliya. Everybody has tasted some sort of jahiliya or, or another. But... Um, so basically, uh, that, that's how it is. Islam came to me. I didn't come to it, you know, because I was, 
You know, like Louis Tamim, like my father is from a Jewish family. I don't see whatever you mean Jewish means. Is that, is that, is that a race? Is that a religion? So that's a long, that's a long story. But he was basically, he's still alive, make door for him. You know, my mother and father are still alive. And, but you know, there was no, in fact, in Cleveland where, you know, last year it was, I was very fortunate to visit my home where I was born and actually saw the house that I, you know, that I lived when I was, you know, a young kid. It's still there in, in my grandmother's place. And right behind our house was a synagogue, which is not there anymore. I don't know what, what happened to that. But I never saw the inside of that place. And then my mother is from a Christian family, and, but, uh, you know, the religion was basically, you know, enjoy the life. I remember when I was a little kid, this is probably the first thing that I remember as a child. So I was sitting on the, and I remember it very vividly, sitting on the, on the couch with my mother, facing the street. In other words, the couch is like this, and you're supposed to be facing this way. So we were sitting looking out the window. And I just asked my mother, I said, Mother, you know, everybody on Saturday and Sunday, they go to the church, they go to the synagogue, and we never do that. How come? So she said, well, if we did that, then we couldn't do the things we like to do. <laughs> you know, we, we like to ride horses, and we like, like to you know, play and, and do things on the weekend, you know. And that's basically what the life is here in America. You, you work all week to enjoy on the weekend. That, that's, so that's what it was, you know. But, um, and the other thing about my family was they were all musicians. So I, I grew up as a, you know, from, from early childhood. And now, you know, I probably talk too much. But as a child, I was very introverted. And uh, the only thing that I really was interested in, two things. Two things I was interested in as a, as a child. One was music from the time I was about four years old. And the second thing was nature. I always had a love for nature. And uh, even after coming, moving here to California, which is a long story, then ultimately we ended up here in the 1960s. And so for a young upcoming musician, this is where you want to be, right? Hollywood. And so, but then after, you know, seeing, you know, after getting into that and, 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 and really finding out what that, entails and involves, it's not just the, the, the art, the whole culture, the whole society, the whole objective, you know? So just like I was saying here, you know, this in, earlier on, so, you know, what's it all about? Is that what life is for, you know? You, you, you go through this whole process and you get, you know, this, this piece of paper and you get this job and you earn money and you buy a house and you, it's, that doesn't, that's life. So, um, even during that period, so I used to, one of the things, and I would, I would strongly suggest this to, to people, you know, that especially young kids, go and connect with nature, you know? Connect with, 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 with the nature, the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that was the redeeming, the, the, the saving grace, I think, for me, because even though I was being told, you know, religion was like, you know, public enemy number one in our house. Yeah, really, my, my father would say, you know, the, all the problems in the world, they're connected to the religion. They're causing all the problems. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we actually were indoctrinated like that, you know. And um, however, you know, then we, from Cleveland, we moved out to Colorado. We had a big property.
property out in the middle of the wilderness. That's another long story. Hopefully there's going to be a book one day. Cleveland was last year that, that started. You know that? You heard about that whole story, right? All the dictation I did about my life, they, they transcribed all that. Anyway, so, it, so in Colorado, like out in the Rocky Mountains, so that was my favorite thing to do was just like go out into the, into the nature and go up on the mountains and just ponder. And so just looking at this creation, you know, that was your Gharahira. Huh? That was like your Gharahira. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I mean, not yeah, I mean, that Nebuchadnezzar or something. But I mean, anybody who goes out there, you know, for example, I'm a surfer also. I surf, I still do that. You can't give that up. And the interesting thing is that I've never met a surfer who's an atheist. You won't find, they're not traditionally religious, <laughs> that's for sure. It's not really a very... But you won't find atheists. Why? Because they're connected with nature. Then the sea, the sun, you know, the, 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 they also, they, they're up early at there, but Fajr. They're out early in the morning, out, out in, the, in the ocean. So connected with nature. So that was, you know, like, and then even in Hollywood, you know, as, as a musician and going through all that, you know, you know bizarre lifestyle, but then just to keep sane and then to, you know, get connection back with real time life. So I used to take off and sometimes I'd go out in the desert. When you talk about the desert, who would want to live in the desert? The desert is amazing. It is, a, it is the most amazing place, you know. So you have the desert. So I used to sometimes go out and just spend days out there in the desert. And in those days, you know, we, used to, we started learning about fasting, water fasting, you know, drinking water just for days on end and stuff like that. And then meditating and all these, whatever spiritual things. So I was just attracted to those kind of things. And then if either the desert or I would go up to Big Sur, which is up in Northern California, which is just an amazing place. And just stay up there for days and just, you know, connect with, with the nature. And so this nature, this universe, it has a creator, you know. And so we need to connect with that creator. All this other stuff is, 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 is useless, it's, you know. When I was in high school, you know, in high school, which was uh, University High School, which is in Los Angeles, it's right like Beverly Hills is here, right? And then UCLA is here, then the other side is West LA, like, you know, the, the downside of the town, right? And so you'd have like, you know, the Beverly Hillers and you'd have the, you know, the West Los Angeles, you know, Latino community or whoever, you know. And the interesting thing was that the Beverly Hill kids, who were mostly Jewish, young Jewish, you know, extremely wealthy, affluent kids, all of them, and this is back in the 1960s, all of them would be visiting psychiatrists. Every single one of them. I mean, that was like standard stuff. You had breakfast, you had lunch, and you went to the psych. <laughs> and, and, and it was even like, you know, uh, who's your shrink, you know? Like my shrink. It was like a status thing, you know, how, who was your shrink and how much you were paid, you know? I mean, everybody's proud of the fact that we're crazy, you know? We're, and, and, and the families, you know, and these are all my friends from high school, you know? So you'd go to their houses, they'd live in these palaces in Beverly Hills and Bel Air. I mean, you can't even imagine these kind of... And it's just, you know, 
you know, this might seem weird, you know, what does this mean? Who turns his back on the dhikr of Allah, on the Quran, on deen, on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him a straightened life, difficult, problematic. So all these guys in Bel Air, they're all arada on dhikri. And they've got these mansions and they got these, but they have Maishat al Dhanka. I've never seen a more prolific example of that than these kids, these families. My God, it was horrific. It was horrific, you know. The, you know, the mother is constantly trying to be, just as a, as a bilimithad, you know. Like my best friend in high school, his mother was always trying to commit suicide. The father had no connection with any of the kids. You know, the sisters ran off somewhere and, you know, you know, we're talking about millionaires and, and, and each one of them was just, you know, uh, living this just really terrible, I mean, inner conflict, psychological torment. So that is, so what's it about? And that's what, you know, that's what they're training us, you know, to be part of that system from day one to the end of it, you know. Or what was it, the, the Steve Jobs, you know, what does he say in the end of his life, you know? The, uh, you know, the founder of the Apple Corporation, you know, after doing all of that, becoming a billionaire, then I just wasted my life, you know. So don't waste your life. <laughs> Use your life, you young kids, you know. So, that, so that's basically, you know, what happened. And then ultimately, uh, it, it ha in Big Sur, actually, it was kind of like, I don't know, I can't even really describe what happened, but Basically, I was there in Big Sur, and I was like fasting. I was doing these like these water fasts. I would spend like about a week just drinking water, and no food, and just doing meditation, whatever meditate we learned from these gurus and what have you, you know, in those days. And uh, doing yoga. So there on, on a mountain there in Big Sur, so it just, I was doing these meditations and state of fasting. And all of a sudden, it just kind of felt like I was kind of like sinking with the whole universe, you know, kind of like, I, I can't explain it, but, and I just got kind of a feeling that, you know, being connected with the universe, meaning connected with the entire energy and the whole, the whole system of the universe, so then being connected with the ultimate source of that, that was like, that's it. That's what I have to do, right? Bus. Now, how am I going to do that? I had no clue, but that's, that's what I need to do. So now it's so long, Hollywood, so long. Huh? At that time, did you, did, did you feel like when, you know, you were in that state, like as at that time when you were not a Muslim, like when you were doing that... It was you, a hal. Yeah, <laughs> did you, did you believe that there is a creator? Or? Oh, definitely, definitely. By that time, I mean... Yeah, because what I'm, what I'm trying to say is even from the childhood, but you know. But you didn't know who it was, but you knew that yeah, there is a creator. But there is a, there is a power, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a divine source of everything. And that, you know, call it he or it or whatever. Definitely. And so then I realized that, you know, just you got to get connected with that. That's, that's what it is, you know. Forget about this other stuff, it's a lot of nonsense, you know. And so now... I just, you know, <laughs> come down from the mountain and, I'm, and people just said, this guy's really lost it, you know, he's just, yeah, and I did, I, I lost, you know, all of that and found much more, you know. And so this is what you're talking about, the nature, in case, you know, some of us think, oh my God, this is like, uh, how Islamic is that, or is that just some Western construct or, you know, leave the material world and go out and, 
into the nature. This is what Sheikh is mentioning is actually again, I don't want to use the term Mansus, then Sheikh Hamza will say it. <laughs> so, but the Prophet has actually instructed us what he's saying. So this is commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by Rasulullah to ponder and reflect. By, by the way, yeah. you know, of course, like I didn't go like for three days like without eating a mixer or whatever, but the... <laughs> Actually, the, the, the desert, it's the same thing in Mauritania. That was yeah, one of the yeah, nice yeah. things is that, like, you wake up for Fajr without an alarm clock. You feel sleepy after Isha. Like, we have so many dysfunctionalities we've internalized. I still can't do any of those things. When I was there in the desert, it, it was natural. Yeah. Weird people have skin diseases. They have different types of things. Uh, they go away. They go away on their own in Mauritania. Sometimes even the durus that I recorded... Because I actually bought an MP3 recorder, and that was like when those things, they, when they're new, you know? And uh, uh, everyone in the Muslim world, if you tell them you're from America, they think you're a spy. Uh, I don't even want to even think about how much Sheikh must have had to de deal with this. Uh, and so I learned, it, like two weeks into Mauritania, don't say the word America in front of any, just you're from Pakistan, and that's it, makes life better and easier. And... Uh, um, and so, uh, so the MP3, like it was like a metal brick this big, it was kind of didn't help that process. But at any rate, I'll listen to the durus sometimes just to hear the birds, the different types of birds and things yeah. like that. There's one type in the morning and one in the afternoon and whatever. And uh, to not make it nostalgic, to kind of make it relevant, people are oftentimes will say things like this. They'll be like, oh, you know, in order to be a really a good alim, you have to first learn to be a good Muslim first, right? In order to be a good Muslim, you have to be a good human being. In order to be a good human being, you have to be like a good animal. I think people need to take lessons like, you know, okay, we have the holistic living, healthy living, you know, mashallah Sheikh has very good programs about that. Um, you have to learn how to be like an animal properly. I don't think, I think people can learn things by watching like chimpanzees and like other weird like animals in nature. Because we don't sleep properly, we don't eat properly, we don't do anything properly. And it's, it messes you up spiritually. Your body is tied to your spirit. Your body is tied to your mind. Your mind is tied to your spirit. If any of them are unhealthy, it's like, you know, it's like if someone tied a, a stone to your leg and threw you in the ocean, the whole body is going to sink with it, not just the leg that has a stone tied to it. And so this is a problem. Yesterday, mashallah, the ash'ar were read uh, in the majlis, mashallah, hamare. Mashallah, beloved Qari Sahib, Hazrat Mashallah read the Ash'ar so beautifully, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, did, you, did, 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 did my Urdu sound weird? I go, all Urdu sounds weird, just don't worry. It was good, it was great. When they talk about ishq and muhabbat and the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? How the hell are you going to know what any of that means? If, you don't even, if you've never fall, fallen in love with a girl before, then what are you going to know what the Mashaykh mean when they talk about... Because these are things that a human being has human experiences, Right? A human being has human experiences, and then they say, well, this thing that I feel reminds me of that other feeling that I had. But it's different. It's more. How are you going to understand the more if you don't even know the basic thing that the analogy is being made on? How are you going to understand, how are you going to understand those things? You don't even know what it's like to be an animal. Even, a, you know, like the, someone, you know, this whole 18 degree, 15 degree, and people, people mashallah, like, 
we have like gladiator fights with fiqh, mashallah. I think mashaykh are people of hikmat, so they don't get into it. I, I, I mashallah, I, love, I don't live to, I'm not here to win or lose, I just live for the fight, mashallah. <laughs> every morning, every morning at like whatever, 3.07 or 3.04 when Fajr comes in, I hear the birds and I'm like, man, everybody is like busy uh, arguing about all this stuff. Even the, even the animals know. Right? But you live inside of your, your house with the AC on, you'll never see anything that's outside. What do you know what Fajr is? People say, but the app is like this and that, and the app, and the app, and the app. <laughs> Throw the app in the garbage, man. Like, mashallah, the people who went to Jannah are not people who woke up for Fajr with the app. Like, illa mashallah. That's the exception, not the rule. So, you know, what Shaykh is doing, like, do a homework, homework assignment. Do something, you know. Do something. Go, go. If you fall in love with a girl, like have the courage to actually talk to her father and ask her to marry you. And then when she says no and your heart is broken and then you learn what it's like to be a musician, whether or not you know how to play an instrument. Um, and you go through all of that cycle, then come back and then listen to what the sheikh said. And then you'll weep, you'll cry when you hear those ashar. Otherwise, if you're just sitting at home playing PlayStation and like, you know, LOL and liking Instagram posts and things like that. Like, how are you gonna, how are you gonna know any of those things? How are you gonna know any of those things? What, what, what the meaning of any of those things is, what the value of any of those things are? <laughs> there's, there's, there's ish here too, don't worry. MashaAllah, but you know, or like go, 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 go do that. Okay, fine, who's up, who's up, who's the tashkil, who's up to go like, because it's not winter here, you, you might die in the winter. There's ways of surviving as, as well. But, you know, who's going to go out and, like, just go to, like, a state park for three days and, like, not eat for, like, three of them? Our graduating class... And then when the donkey eats your dates, then, then, then say, oh, that shaykh's... Because, you know, here it's like, oh, I just had broast. Now I'm going to have some dates because it's like a sunnah, you know? No. When that's the only thing you have to eat and the donkey eats your dates, then come and describe the feeling and we'll talk about Mauritania, inshallah. Yeah, our graduating students, they're going uh, to Alaska. Subhanallah. Mashallah, this whole thing about like uh, going to Alaska with your class, that doesn't happen in Mauritania, it doesn't happen in Pakistan. This whole thing about having like meals. <laughs> Every place has its own earth, mashallah. Subhanallah, so these uh, pondering and reflecting over the science in nature, subhanallah. You know, as one of our uh, sahaba who was asked, how did he recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So he gave all the beautiful examples from nature. In the desert. In al-ba'ir. When I see the droppings of the camel, then I know a camel has passed by. When I see the athar al-aqdam, the footsteps in the sand, this indicates to me a person has walked through this sand. This beautiful sky, which we don't see the stars because of the illumination, the light around us in the cities. But this beautiful sky with the constellations and in the stars and the galaxy, you can see the Milky Way galaxy itself. How can this in the land with the mountains and the valleys and and the ocean with, with the waves crashing on the beach how can it not indicate to me that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the present and he is the khaliq and fatir and the creator of all that we see so all of these 
our contemplations over the nature. How strange it is. First stage is how can Allah even be disobeyed? Beyond that, how can the atheist deny his existence? In every single thing around me, there is a sign. Which indicates to me that he is the one Allah. So this is a very, very beautiful lesson that we learn from our mashayikh here. Subhanallah. I wanted to ask Sheikh, uh, how was uh, your experience as an American? This is something uh, really strange that we have the vast majority, our younger people here, so I would say the vast majority of their parents have migrated to America from Indo-Pak subcontinent and other countries. But uh, what is really unique and people find hard to believe as an American-born citizen, uh, uh, how did you, you choose to live in Pakistan for so many decades? When everyone is coming here and you went there. That's a question I asked myself too. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, kept you there? What were your... What yeah, actually, um, so that whole, it's, it's kind of a mindset which would develop back in the 60s. So as a musician and a hippie and all that kind of thing. So, uh, and involved in all of those uh, movements of the 60s of, you know, going against, you know, the American policy and Vietnam War and civil rights and all that kind of stuff. So I came to this conclusion, among other conclusions, spurious or otherwise, that, you know, and when I left the United States in 1970, so I told my mother, I remember, I said, look, mom, this place is not fit for a human being to live. I'm getting out of here. If you have, if you have good sense, you get out yourself. You, know? you left in 1970. Yeah, 1970. So, like, 19, when 60s were over, I was, like, out. So, actually, 1970, then I took off. So, I was kind of, like, um, always looking for a different... I thought that, you know, this is not what it's really about. This must be a different culture, a whole different, you know, place where we can, you know... You know what I'm looking for, a place where we connect with the Creator, and there's... Anyway, so it's a long story, but in any case... So then, uh, as a student in Makkah, um, and you know, that those were kind of like, perhaps in that, at that time, that was like the end of the, of the former era, because after that, then they kind of like, through, so there used to be 500 halqa of ilm in Haram Makki, 500 circles of, anything you wanted to learn, you know, from, you know, from, from the physical science. Where were the Mashaikh from? The teachers were from? From all over the world. And that, that's the thing of Makkah and Medina. They're, they're actually, the people of Makkah and Medina traditionally, they're not actually, very few are from the actual surrounding tribes, the Arabi, you know, the, 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 the tribes of the, that live around that area. The people of Hijaz are basically people who came from wherever, and, and, and particularly Mashaikh and ulama. You know, how the Shinqiti, how the Murutani, how the Afriqi, how the Hindi, how the Bukhari, how the Jawi, how the Musharadesh. You know, so the, the, how the Maghribi. So the, the ulama were all from all over, yeah. And so people actually came there to live in Makkah because it was Makkah, you know, Al-Haramin. It was interesting, there was, a, there was one Hakim. His name was Hakim Miraj al-Hassan. I can't imagine he's still alive, but was an old man in those days, you know. But, um, so when he came there, there was no other Hakim, you know, in, that they were aware of. And so one of the royal family 
got sick with some kind of weird sickness and so um, they found out about this guy and so he, you know, gave him, you know, ilaj and treatment and the guy got better, you know, the, whoever that was from the royal family said, what do you want? Anything we can do? He said, I don't want anything. Just make me a citizen. You're done. They used to, in Makkah, there used to be a guy, the old people from Makkah, we heard this from them. There used to, the, the guy from the government would walk down the streets in Makkah, Halum Moyanas, man, you need al Ta'al, you know, come, whoever wants to become a citizen, come. Citizen of what? What do you got, you know? And it was the people of India and Egypt that used to, you know, Yunfiqwan al Fuqara Makkah. You know, they used to support the people of Makkah. Maybe they'd wait for the Hujaj to come and they'd. Our own Mashaykh, you know, they used to say if we got food in the morning, somehow or another, there's no th thought about we're going to get something to eat the, next, the end of the day, you know. We'll see tomorrow, maybe, you know. So anyway, so this Hakim, so he became, you know, he got citizenship, was a big deal in those days. And then, so then he said there was no doctor in Makkah. So one doctor from Egypt came, Tabib, Misri. So when the doctor came from Egypt, all the people started coming to him. You know, I got, and he used to get mad at him. He said, he said I didn't come here to treat people. I came here to be in Mecca. I said, you have Zamzam, Zamzam ni mashuri You know, you go and drink Zamzam. What, what's wrong with you people? You know, you got angry. And so that's how it was. You know, we, there, was a, there was an old guy. The, next to our house in Makkah, there was an old mutawaf. They were, you know, originally their ancestors were from India. So the Indian hujaj used to come there. And uh, so he was telling us that this is one rich merchant from wherever in India he came and he was bald. And he was pretty concerned about that for whatever reason. And so he was trying to get, you know, get his hair to grow back. So he, he went to Europe, he went I don't know where else. So this Mutaf, he said, look, we got Zimzim, just go and drink Zimzim. And yeah, he just started drinking Zimzim and his hair came back. And that's how it was. Zimzim ni ma But you have to have yaqeen. I'll tell you another thing. Zimzim, I don't know what this stuff is now they call Zimzim. It just tastes like water, right? Zimzim used to be heavy. And it used to, you know, you, you drink Zimzim and I mean, it's like, it, yeah, it's like, uh, it's food and drink and the whole thing, you know. Sheikh, you're speaking of Zimzim, Dimashuri, but what he, the translation is whatever intention you make when you drink it. Yeah. SubhanAllah. Sheikh, that's Sayyid Baghdad, she has that book about the different intentions people have made. When yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. All lofty. Yeah, yeah. Hadithun, right? you know. Yeah, you, so, yeah, 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 one yeah. of the most uh, kind of interesting, but perhaps not the most noble intention was when a person was right by the first saf, by the Kaaba, and it was a salah. I forgot if it was taraweeh or what prayer it was. And he, he had a real strong need to use the bathroom to urinate. And he had to go all the way back and make wudu and come back. And he didn't want to miss the jama'ah. So he drinks the zamzam with the intention that he doesn't have to go to the bathroom. And so this maybe is I so counterintuitive. He drinks it and subhanAllah, he didn't have to go. Until the end of the better bring the me some night. of that because I'm <laughs> probably gonna have to in a few minutes. This is one of the very interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's how it was, you know. And you used to have to line up behind the well. You know, the well used to be right in there in the Mataf or in that area. And you'd line up, and then by nine o'clock it was it was it was done. The pump was the, not there; it was still it was, dry. It was the well. You would dry well, it up. When I, was there, pump I mean, or, you know, yeah. yeah, it was already there, but still, it was it was over there. So, and then it would dry up, and then you have to wait till the next day to get Zimzim. 
And that's why, you know, you, you, when you hear about the munafiqeen, they can't drink a lot of zamzam, you know? If you would have tasted it back then, you'd understand why. It, wasn't, it was weird, you know, it was, it was heavy. It was full of, you know, and some people say, how do you drink that stuff? It's full of heavy metals and I don't know what all, and it's got all these heavy mineral contents. Yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. So, but in those days, um, so what did I want to say? I want to say something I forgot. What were we talking about before that? Yeah, I was asking, how did you end up deciding to leave America? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, okay. So, so in Mecca, yeah, so, so that era, you know, was, was coming to an end. The, the era of, you know, Mashayikh and Halakat al-Ilm and, and it just became more and more repressive and all that, you know. And being from America, you know, we're free, you know. We're not going to live under, you know, I didn't accept Islam to come under this guy's, you know, order and rule. So actually Pakistan, the main reason we went to Pakistan was that Pakistan is a place you can do anything you want. <laughs> Good, bad, otherwise. Really. Land and of the actually, free home of the brave, huh? huh? Land of the free home of the brave. Yeah, you got to be brave to live over there, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't claim to be that, but anyway, yeah. So the point was is that, you know, going through all the Arab countries, and it's still like that, I mean, it's just totally, you know. So you have, you, know, you can't, you know, there's no personal freedom and, you know, you can't really. So Pakistan, so as a student also, I, you know, I went to India and Bangladesh back in 1973, you know, with the Jamaat back in those days. And then, Nizam then while I was, huh? Nizamuddin. Yeah, Nizamuddin and, and, and Bangladesh. But, uh, and then while I was in Makkah, then I, I came to Pakistan a couple of times. And so because of the fact that, you know, just the whole system over there and the, and then, you know, ironically, for the children, there wasn't any real, you know, future in the school. My, my elder, you know, Ibrahim, my, my eldest son, right? So we moved, they were, first of all, they were studying with, you know, Qurra from, uh, and you're Nurani Qaeda, right? So Sahib Nurani Qaeda in those days was in, was in Medina. Qari Fatih Muhammad Rahmatullahi. When you talk about see somebody that, you know, oh, Qari Fatih Muhammad Bani Pati was one of the greatest Qur'an of the century. He, he wrote the Inayat al-Rahmani, the Sharaf Shatbiyah, mashallah, many books. And not only that, but you... Many of the Imams of Haram were his students. Huh? Yeah. Many of the Imams of the Haram were his, Haramain, in fact, were his students. Hulayfiyu and all of them used to study. Well, they were all influenced because he was like, you know, hands down, Shaykh al-Qur'an. But, but that, that was one thing. But if you just saw this individual, you know, the same thing like, you know, these awliyaullah. He was, uh, you know, he was a walking Quran, you know, and uh, you more than just half of the Quran of one Qira'ah, all the Qira'at. Yeah, yeah. I saw him in Medina Manora. I saw him sitting, and uh, you know, he gave me. He used to the, the house that we lived in. On we, we we originally lived in Marwa, right on top of Marwa, Safan Marwa. It was the Imarat al Ashraf. It was the old building of the Ashraf from Makkah in the old days. So waqf. So. You know, it belonged to one of our, you know, one of our elders there in Makkah. So we used to live over there. And so Qari Fatih Muhammad, when he would come, he would stay there. Malani Idris from Bin Uritan used to live. Mufti Wali Hassan, all these people would come and they would stay there. Sheikh Said used to always come and stay there. So Qari Fatih Muhammad gave me a sadriya. Sadriya is, you know, like a vest, a sort of vest sweater, which obviously, you know, I kept that as a, as a, as a, as a tabarruk, you know. And then, after a while, it disappeared. And they come to find out my son Abdurrahman had 
snatched it. <laughs> and uh, so he's still got it, mashallah. He's still got that, I think. I, and Abdurrahman, by the way, he's the best Qari of our Mawmay kids, you know, he really reads Quran nice. So, yeah, Qari, Qari Fatih Muhammad, subhanAllah. I mean, and this was a guy, Simon Dahar. You know, he would never accept on, you know, Eidain. And... Uh, Simon Dahar means fasting the entire year. Yeah, he'd, he'd, fast, he'd be fasting continuously. He'd only break his fast. And if you wanted to offer Salah, just like, you know, uh, Sheikh Murabat al-Hajj, if you wanted to say salam to him and it was not makruh time, if he wasn't la yukriya, if he wasn't, you know, teaching somebody or listening to somebody, he'd be in, in nafal salat. And by the way, he was blind. He was in a wheelchair. He couldn't walk. He weighed about 60 pounds. I don't know. The guy was just skin and bones, you know. But you see his face, it was like, I mean, you would look at his face, you know, like, you know, like the hadith. I was looking at the face of Rasulullah, looking at the, at the moon, which is more, you know, his face. That face, I've never seen anything like that. Just radiance, radiance, you know. And his, uh, one, of my, one of my colleagues, you know, in, in Durus and with Mashaikh was actually a, a very, was a very good Qadi who came to Makkah and he was teaching Quran in Haram. And uh, Qadi Abdul, what's his name? I think he's still alive. Anyway, he was a Qadi, he was a Khaz Khadim of Qadi Fatih Muhammad special, you know, servant of Qari Muhammad. So he used to tell us that, you know, Qari Fatih Muhammad would be like sleeping and his lips would be going. And sometimes an ayat, you'd hear an ayat. I mean, it's like, so he's even in, in sleep, he's reading Quran, you know. And I mean, he was, you know, Ahlul Quran, Ahlullah wa khasatuhu. So, What's that? Yeah, did you see him? Allahu Akbar. And he was, a, and what other people don't know about him perhaps is that he was a famous sheikh also. He was, you know, he had a lot of murids. He was like, Allah wala, number one, you know, subhanAllah. Unbelievable person, yeah. So anyway, so, but, uh, yeah, so, so after graduating from there, then I, I actually, I, I had been in Pakistan a few times. And what I liked about Pakistan, you could do what, you know, what you wanted to do. You could do things. In the Arab world, you can't do it. You know, you follow the protocol and keep quiet and just flow, go with the flow. But Pakistan, you can do things. And that was the beautiful thing. It was the one place in the Muslim world where you could actually do things and things were being done. And so... Yeah, so basically my risk was there, so that's how I ended up. You mentioned from, from Makkah you went to Pakistan uh, as, because of the, the freedom there versus the repressive regime. Yeah. Uh, and then during your discussion, you just dropped the name of Sheikh Saeed Ahmad Khan Sahib. Yeah. So he, how was your experience with him having the opposite story from Pakistan or India coming to well, Makkah? Actually, it was his mashwara that, you know, I, I went to Pakistan because actually he was, he was our... He was our sheikh, and he was, mashallah, sheikh, sheikh, there's, if anybody asks me, people ask me, have you met anybody that, you know, was like Rasulullah, sallallahu I said, yeah, there's two people. I mean, uh, obviously, like Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa mushabaha. Mushabaha. Mushabaha, it's quite a big difference, you know, so, but two of them, I won't mention who is the other one, for various reasons. But one I will mention is Sheikh Said Ahmed Khan. 
this, this was a person, when you see his life, you would see the life of Rasulullah. His tawadi and his fikr and his, you know, the, everything about him. And that's why actually Mulana Ilyas sent him to Hijaz, you know. Because he was there from like, he was actually, he came there, he went there when the Saudi, you know, uh, you know things started during the time of King Abdul Aziz. And he and Mulana Ubaidullah was another sheikh from. Mulana Ubaidullah Sindhira. No, no, no. Mulana Ubaidullah Baliavi, I mean. From, you know, from Nizamuddin. So they were sent by Mulana Ilyas to Hijaz, you know, during the time of the King Abdul Aziz. And, you know, so these two Indians walking around, so, you know, who are these guys? What are they doing? So they grabbed them and started interrogating, what are you guys doing? And they eventually took them to the king and said, hey, these guys are walking around, you know, and misguiding people, we don't know what they're into. So the king said, okay, well, what are you guys, what are you into? And so they explained, but it's tabligh. So the king said, wow, that's wonderful. And he wrote down, a hand wrote a letter for them that this is Sheikh Sayyid Ahmed Khan with Rufaqahu, and they should be left to move anywhere they want, and they should be given full freedom and help them wherever they are, and signed by the king, you know, the one who established the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You know, and then later he, uh, and I'll tell you an amazing thing about him, so he, you know, he was a Saudi citizen, you know, they, and from, from, you know, day one. And Molana Ilyas, when he sent him, you know, he, he mentioned that, you know, in Nizamuddin that he's going to send somebody to Hijaz. So at that time, you know, Molana uh, Abul Hassan Ali Nedwi and Molana Badri Alam and, and all these, you know, Mashayikh who actually, you know, around, yeah, and all were around Molana Ilyas in those days, you know. So every one of them was hoping, I'm going to be that one that's going to be sent to. So then in the morning, he says, uh, I'm sending Sayyid, Sayyid, Sayyid Khan. Nobody could figure that out, you know. I mean, this guy, you know, what's, what's his... You know, Sheikh Said, he said, you know, I, I flunked Bukhari. You know, he, he wasn't this academic kind of guy, you know. He said, I, I failed the, the test of Bukhari. Huh? didn't repeat anything. Nobody fails, actually. I mean, he didn't pass that test. You don't fail in the Madaris in Pakistan, you know. You you know, you get through. He said, I just, you know, I, I just thought about things I heard from Milani Elias and wrote it down, but I guess the teacher wasn't. He was actually in Saharanpur. He did his, uh, all that in Saharanpur, the Sheikh al-Hadith. So anyway, so, so the ulama, they, they said, you know, sending this guy, I mean, he's not known for scholarship. He's not known for, you know, so why are you sending him? I mean, you know, okay, fine, but, you know, like Malaika, you know, why did you choose, you know, Adam, you know, what's his special thing, you know? So he said, because I have seen him the closest in resemblance and following of Rasulullah And that's what it's about. You leave all that other stuff, you know, ittiba' Rasul, in kuntu tehibun Allah, that was his life. And I'll tell you, there's so many things, you know, just like all these mashaykh that you mentioned, I mean, their whole lives were just... But I'll tell you one of the most amazing things that I saw about Sheikh Saeed. Now, keep in mind, who, who gave him, you know, the permission to stay in Saudi Arabia? The founder of the, of the kingdom. The founder of the kingdom. With all tarheeb, you know. Now, later on, as things got, you know, from 1979, 1979, I don't know if you, uh, those who are older, 
there was a you know that Jahiman and that whole war in the Haram. These guys yeah. tried to take over the Haram, claim it was over. Mahdi, and there was a you know. So we were there in those days. You, know, you were there was, when they took, yeah, tried to take over the Haram. That was that was one of the most surreal events of my life. I I can't even I won't even go into that. In any case, during that. So, you know, as I said, you know, they do what they want. So they, Sheikh Saeed and others, they just disappeared for like six months. It's not like you call your lawyer, you find out, you, you know, you're gone, you're gone. You don't even ask anybody what's happened to them. Because after that, then everybody looked like they were religious or whatever, and they had any kind of doubt about it. They just, you know, you're gone. You might come back, you might not. Okay, then three or four times they just did this to him, you know. They, you know, they just take him and... and you know, imprison him for, for months on end. So if the youth are not understanding, he, he didn't just disappear on his own voluntarily. That means he was picked up by the yeah, authorities. Yeah, picked up by the intelligence, you was, know, yeah. and held, you he know, was where, where, nobody knows. So this went on for several years. I mean, for, you know, a few decades, you know, they kept from, from time to time, you know, they'd, they'd take him and, 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 and then ultimately, they took away his citizenship and exiled him out of the country. And by that time, I had already gone to Pakistan. And by his mashwara, actually, it was his mashwara that I went to Pakistan. I mean, I kind of wanted to do that, anybody, but he was the one that actually said, yeah, go to Pakistan. Okay, fine. So, now, when, he, when that happened, he actually, so he was sent out, and I was actually in Raiwind. I was out in Jamaat, and I was out in Tashkil somewhere. I came back to, to the Marcas. And so Sheikh Said was sitting there on the, you know, one of the verandas, one of the, you know, sitting somewhere. So I saw him, and I had heard that, you know, what had happened. So, Sheikh, so what happened? He said, well, I don't think actually I'm, you know, I'm uh, suitable. I'm, I'm not, I don't deserve to live in Medina Manora. So, you know. I mean, if anybody belongs in Medina Manawara, it's Sheikh Said Ahmed Khan. And I never heard him say a single word that look what these people did to me, how he they... Never, never heard a complaint against never. the government. Never. And he had nothing to say about them except good things. You never you know they're the best on the world. You know? So, you know, we... we, we Allah we, Ta'ala brought him back before he passed away. And you know, there's another incident. I don't know if you, do you remember Mulani Idris from Benuri town? Did you ever see him? Mirti, he was one of the, you know, with Mulana Benuri, one of the original. Huh? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's Muslim and, and Jalalain. I'll tell you an interesting story about that too. So, so when Sheikh came to, and by that I was in Benuri town, you know, and so, and so uh, there's another interesting thing I'll tell you about that. <laughs> Um, no, I won't tell you about that. It's better than I don't. <laughs> so anyway, so when he came to Benuti Town, um, so everybody was saying, wow, that's terrible. How did they do that? Melania Dri said, Boracha hua. Boracha kia. He said, that's very good, excellent. So people said, you know, what's, what's wrong with this guy, you know? He said, you know, Sheikh was like a bird in the cage, and now the cage is open, and now he can go. And that's exactly what happened. Now, he's, he's in his, he must have been in like his 70s and 80s by that time. And then until he died, he was on the move. He yeah, Chicago, he, was he was in America, then he was in China, he then he was, I don't know where, then he was I South Africa, and he was... 88, 
Jesus. And you know what? Everywhere he'd go, he'd be, you'd see him, he'd like, you know, as you say in Urdu, kabrai, kabrai ho gaya. You know, he'd like, when are we going back? Because he, he had to die in Medina. That's the only thing he was worried about is dying in Medina. Yeah. So wherever he'd be, you know, and then ultimately, he died in Medina. The, share, the same thing with the, with, with the, back in the days, we had one, uh, a Sheikh Suleiman, Dr. Suleiman Dunya, who was from Azhar, one of the old Azharis, who was in New York. Oh, I, I, has anyone here, none of the older people saw him? Dr. Dunya, Sheikh Luqman and all these, he, you know, he was, he was the one that gave shahada to so many people. I mean, this guy was subhanAllah. And he was a, you know, he was a, he was a specialist in Ghazali. That was his thing. And this guy was, Allah So ultimately, he also, his only concern at the end of his life was he wanted to die in Medina. And so ultimately, while I was a student in Makkah, he ultimately was sent to Saudi Arabia and he became a teacher in Makkah. And he was teaching in Darasatuli and graduate studies in Umul Quran. And then Luqman, rahmatullahi for those who knew Luqman, anybody, our former Amir of Tabligh, Luqman, yeah, like us, we're all from the street, you know. We were all Brother actually Rakeeb. former jazz musicians. The, the, the first shura of America, the first, Maureen al-Haq, where's Maureen? Maureen is here? Is he here? So Maureen al-Haq and myself and, 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 um, and there was one Ashraf, Brother Ashraf, and there was three of us, myself, Luqman, and Abdul Raqib, who were all former musicians from the streets. That's who, you know, your, your legacy is, you know. Don't blame us. I mean, that, that, that's how it was. They didn't have anybody else out there, you know. So Luqman came for Hajj, you know. And uh, so I took him to see Dr. Dunya, and they were very, they had, they were very close because of the decades they were together in New York. So I'll never forget this, you know, we, we came and, and, and when Dr. Suleiman saw, saw Luqman, he just started weeping. Oh, Luqman, Luqman. And then he said, Luqman, only I want to die in Medina. That's all I want. Just make two of me. And within a few weeks, he actually was in Medina visiting and he died over there. And he's buried over there. So anyway, yeah, I don't know, just rambling on and on. I don't know if it makes any sense, any... But just some dhikriyat, tayyibin, khair. Dhikr salihin, no doubt, no doubt. I think I need some of your zemzem you're talking about, you know, because I'm also having a problem like your buddy. And I, <laughs> I have to take a, you know, a break here. Inshallah, jazakumullah khairan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward all of our guests and with those beautiful words of the scholars uh, of the past and truly revives our hearts and we are so blessed to have them amongst us um, we, we, we may not have been able to uh, visit these mashayas stay in their company we may not have been so fortunate but let us value those who are present amongst us and inshallah benefit from them so alhamdulillah we'll be moving on to the next session with Mufti Abdi Muddin uh, he will be, uh, inshallah, speaking a little bit uh, about some of the programs. We had an open house regarding uh, the Dar es Salaam programs on Friday morning. Uh, there was uh, not many people who could make it. And then there are uh, many, many youth from different cities have come in. 
and through their request, they're repeatedly asking uh, that they want to know about the one-year program, they want to know about the programs offered here. So we're going to have a quick, um, brief introduction about some of the programs. Uh, so please stay tuned, those youth in particular who are asking, and parents as well, regarding their, their children, we can learn about some of the programs. Brothers, inshallah, if we, if we can come closer again. Um, like I said, we have a guest that was not on the schedule. He would like to share a few words. So if you make your way back in, inshallah, I'd appreciate that. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Inshallah, we will be getting back together for our next session with Sheikh Omar Husseini. The topic of, this, of the session, persevering through the challenges of marriage. So inshallah, I humbly request all of our brothers that are out in the lobby, brothers that are in the masjid, to please come closer inshallah. Come closer, uh, sit together so that people coming later have space in the back inshallah. Again, brothers in the lobby and outside in the courtyard, inshallah, we'll be starting our next session with Sheikh Omar Husseini regarding the challenges of marriages. Just a short intro to our speaker, Sheikh Omar Husseini. Sheikh Mohammed Omar Husseini was born in Park Ridge, Illinois in 1978. He grew up in the Chicagoland area where he completed the memorization of the Quran at the Ma'ahad al-Ta'alim al-Islam in 1996. Upon completing his high school education at CPSA in 1998, he gained admittance into the UIC GPPA program in medicine. During his high school and college years, he concurrently became, began studying Arabic, the Arabic language and classical Islamic sciences as, at Ma'ahad Ta'alim al-Islam. Upon graduating with a bachelor's in psychology in 2000, Sheikh Umar took nearly two years off to study sacred knowledge. In 2002, he matriculated at the UIC School of Medicine at this time, he also began his formal training in the science of spiritual purification. Prior to his final semester in medical school, Sheikh Omar traveled to Darul Ulum Zakaria, South Africa, to further pursue Islamic studies. There in South Africa, he completed the final year of the Sharia course, studying under such luminaries as Sheikh Rada Al Haq, Hafidhahullah Ta'ala Wa one of the leading muftis of South Africa. In 2006, he received degrees in both Sharia studies as well as in medicine. From 2007 to 2013, Sheikh Omar completed his medical residency in anatomic and clinical pathology and fellowships as well at Washington University in St. Louis. During this time, he also received formal authorization in the Islamic science of spiritual purification. Sheikh Omar is currently a staff physician at the Mofit Cancer Center and an assistant professor of oncological sciences at the University of South Florida in Tampa, where he resides. We are very blessed to have Sheikh Omar uh, in our midst. It is uh, our pleasure and honor to have him here and a means of uh, inspiration for all of us here listening. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make his words beneficial for us and make it a means of change, a means of getting closer to Allah. Ameen Ya Rabbil Alameen. Without further ado, I call upon Sheikh Umar. <clears throat> Jazakallah. 
Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi al-lazina usafa ma ba'd. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ali Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim. So the topic um, that the organizers asked me to speak about uh, is uh, sort of navigating through the vicissitudes of marriage. So what's vicissitudes anyway? What does that mean? It means that Mulanas aren't stupid. Yeah, no, seriously, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give them strength. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give them istikhama. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide them and guide through them, inshallah, and give them uh, the firasa to uh, navigate the waters of uh, you know, modern society. Uh, you know, looking back, I have, I don't know, almost two decades of experiencing uh, dealing with communities and community issues and people's issues, and it's really, you know, it's a two-edged sword. It's, on the one hand, uh, it's really, I mean, it's a privilege because people sit down with you. I mean, Mufti Azim was telling me, he said, oh, how, how are your one-on-ones going? That's your khususiyat, like just sitting with people, talking one-on-one. But the amazing thing about that is that when you sit with people, they're opening up their most private portions of their life to you, and that's a trust. And, and because of that, just you see a lot. And you see a lot of crazy things. You see a lot of unpleasant things. Um, and, and after, and I'm telling you, almost 20 years, one of the things that comes to the fore is that there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. It just doesn't exist. That's Pulp Fiction. That's the stuff that movies are made of. In real life, there's, there's no perfect marriage. What you have are two imperfect people living in an imperfect world, doing the best that they can, and sometimes not. Right? That's probably closer to reality. The ideal of marriage is not the situation when all the stars align, because they never do. It's when people are able to look past their own differences they're able to look past their own challenges for something that's bigger than themselves. When they are able to sacrifice for others, when they're able to prefer others over themselves, when they're able to aim for ideals that are bigger than something like happiness or comfort or connectedness or romance or fun, when life becomes about things which are more meaningful like principle, God. So earlier this week, this was a very busy service week. I mean, it was early in the morning, you know, after the Hajj time. I had a couple of, I don't know, an hour or two, and I tried to put together some of the salient um, principles that have, um, you know, arisen over time that. I would like to share with the, with um, the audience with regards to how to really deal with you know things that come up in marriage because marriage is going to have ups and you don't need anyone to give you a talk about the ups because that's you know a foregone conclu conclusion. It's easy to deal with situations which are good because they're fun and they feel good and I mean that's not a problem. The problem is with the problem, and that's what we need to sort of talk about and learn how to grapple with. So the first concept. Concept number one, or principle number one, is, has to do with the concept of friction when you have two bodies of matter. 
the way that the physical world works is that anytime you take two bodies of matter and they come in contact with each other, there is inherently a certain level of friction that arises between those two bodies. And the fact of the matter is no one is free from this. No one, right? You can't just get up one day and feel like, I don't feel like gravity. Right? Sorry, you don't get a choice. It's, that's life. So in the same way, friction occurs. And there's two types of friction. Right? And for different, depending on, on the body that you're dealing with, there's different coefficients of, fraction, uh, of friction. So some bodies, when they're in, juxtaposed to another body, will have more friction, some less, but friction always, right, generally speaking, exists. Um, and so the idea is that when you have, and there's two types of friction, there's static friction and there's kinetic friction. And usually static friction, which is the friction that causes, when, when you move something from a resting state into motion, is going to be more than um, kinetic friction when something's already in motion. Right? These are some background principles just to keep in mind. In the same way, when, when you have friction, what does that do? It generates something called heat. Right? When, and when you, that's why when you're cold, you rub your hands together especially maybe not in Florida where it's always doesn't get cold, but over here, I mean, you see people, right, and, and doing this because what are you doing? You're creating friction by moving two bodies against each other. So in the same way that two physical bodies, when they're put juxtaposed with each other, creates friction, you take two human beings and put them in their, each other's orbit, meaning they make contact as they do in relationship, there's going to be friction. It might be less, it might be more, but there will be friction by the very nature of that interaction. And that's going to produce heat. And that's not something that you need to freak out about. Because if you want to move, right, if you want to become kinetic, if you want to grow, which requires movement, you have to overcome that friction. It's not a choice. Right? Otherwise, you will be stagnant. And what we find is when things stagnate, bad things happen. If your blood stagnates, it coagulates. You get blood clots and you're gonna stroke out. If you, know, you put water and it's you leave it and it's not moving, then it becomes a cesspool of mold and fung fungus. I mean, in nature, things have to be moving. That's how you create life. I mean, what happens to a human body when it you know, stops living? When it's dead, movement stops. So if you have to move and you want to keep life in your relationship, you have to move and then you have to confront this friction. And I said, no one is free from this. A person went to Umar to complain about his wife and when he came to outside of his house, he heard his Umar wife speaking you know, to, the, to the Umar in a way that was you know, loud. So he's like, if Amir al-Mu'mineen can't get away with this, I mean, well, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm taking off. And then he, then he you know, mentioned it to Umar and he said, yeah, you know, she was saying some stuff, but, you know, she also does a lot of other things. She takes care of my kids, you know. I mean, she's, she, he didn't focus on, on that. He focused on, on the good. And so that's part of life, you know. So I'm just giving you an example from even the best of generations. It's like it happened. And in the next, in principle two, we're going to look at the Prophet ﷺ. Did friction even exist in his relationships? And surprisingly, the non-politically correct answer is yes. And that's, I mean, it's in hadith, you can't take it away. But the problem was, that's just, that's life. That's not a problem. The problem is how that friction was overcome. 
and that's what's elevating. So you can't get rid of friction, but you can lower the coefficient of friction, right? So the smoother two bodies are, the easier it is for them to move past each other. If you take two metal balls, which are very smooth, you're gonna have a very low coefficient of friction. If you have steel blade against ice, low coefficient of friction. That's why you can go ice skating, right? As opposed to like Teflon. Try to drag Teflon across Teflon. Doesn't work very well. Some people are just built out of Teflon, right? Actually, that's the one substance where the coefficient of friction for static and kinetic is basically equal. It doesn't get easier, you know, even when you start moving. Because the idea is that you know, when you first work, you start working a relationship, is really hard. But when you get used to movement and compromising, then it gets easier over time because you're in the habit, but not if you're a tough lot. Anyway, so how do you create two bodies which are smooth, right, which are refined? The way that you do that is through spiritual purification, right? Through spiritual growth. When a person refines themselves spiritually, when a person perfects their own character, they become smooth. It's easy to get along with that person. When you come into their presence, you don't feel the same type of friction. Even if, you, even if you're rough and you try to impose that roughness on something, because they're so smooth, it just rolls off. If you take two kids and you put them in a room, what are they gonna do? They're gonna fight, right? Because they're immature. You know, I was in the masjid, we were doing etikaf one time, right? And one of the like, grumpy old uncles was sitting there. And then the class, every masjid has to have one. And then someone, like the kids were playing around in the back and someone threw a water ball and I think it hit uncle, you know? And he looks back and there's just two kids. Like they're just like both sitting there and they're like, Right, like he did, he did it's like the kids, I mean, both of them couldn't have done it. It was one of them, but it, the first initial, you put kids, they're gonna fight. He hit me first, he was looking at me like that. I didn't look at you like that, you're just saying that, stop lying. Just back and forth, tutu meme, right? And when you have little kids, they'll do that. When you take people who are spiritually immature and you put them in a room, they'll also fight. They'll always fight. So, People have to grow up. Spiritual maturity is important. And as you mature spiritually, you lower that coefficient for friction. And the epitome of spirituality, um, or spiritual maturity, is achieving a state of taqwa. Right? Where you fear Allah so much that you don't mess up with anyone. Now, a person came to Shaykh Nuh, and he talked about, he asked him about the verse about hitting in the Quran, wadribuhunna, right? And he responded in such a beautiful way. He said, uh, he said, the operative for the Muslim man in a marriage is al-Muslimu man salim al-Muslimuna min lisanihi wa yadi. That the Muslim is the one that the other person is safe from their hand and their tongue. People should feel safe with you. They should feel comfortable with you. They should be able to trust you. That you should be a sanctuary of aman. And you can't do that until you become a man of taqwa. People in times past, they used to say, marry your daughter to a person of taqwa because if he loves her, he loves her. And if he not, at least he will fear Allah in her regard. It's a safety. Right? It's a